chapter 1 again. Mark chapter 1. Last week was the introduction and we got to finish the first verse. Mark chapter 1. And so if you weren't here last week, I don't think you really didn't miss too much because actually the verses today too, we're going to read, uh, we're going to go through 2 through 4 today. And they actually flow out of verse 1. So if you weren't here today, um, or excuse me, last week, that's okay because today is going to kind of fill in some of that gap from last week. So let's pray and then we're going to read chapter 1 of Mark verses 1 through 4. Let's pray for, for God's help. Father, we come before you now and we pray for your illumination. We pray for your help. We pray that in your grace you would help us to see Christ, help us to see the forerunner of Christ and the promise of the gospel that was even in the Old Testament, that you would open that to us today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us understanding. Father, we pray that you would draw us closer to you, that we would be more grateful for Christ, that we would cling to Christ all the more ferociously, knowing the great things that he has done for our souls. We thank you that Christ has cared for us, that he's cared for our souls, and that we have a great high priest today. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Give us grace as we open your word. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so look at verse 1, and and I'm going to start in verse 1 again, even though we did that last week, but it does flow out of verse 1. So verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so what you see here right away in my NASB, the verses in, in 2 and 3, they're capitalized. And I don't know what your translation is going to look like, but usually there'll be some kind of, there'll be something to... to to show that this is coming from the Old Testament. It's quoting the Old Testament. And the reason this is so neat is because when you look at these verses, so first of all, Mark, remember last week we were talking about how Mark was written to a primarily Gentile Christian audience. They were not primarily Jewish people, the people that Mark was writing this gospel to. But isn't it something that he starts out the whole gospel with a reference to Old Testament verses, Old Testament promises? And so the reason he does that is because when you turn to these verses, and I actually, so this is a, verses 2 and 3 are taken from three different places in the Old Testament. What you see in verse 2 where it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Okay, it's interesting because although he says it comes from Isaiah the prophet, that's one of three verses. So this is a composite of three different verses from the Old Testament, one of which is Isaiah. He says it's Isaiah because number one, Isaiah was the most prominent prophet. Number two, this actual, um, the verses that are taking, most of it does come from Isaiah. So it's not, like, it's not like this is incorrect or untrue. It does come from Isaiah. Isaiah is the primary prophet that he, that he speaks of here. But when you look at all three verses, it actually, it actually tells us a lot about exactly what this promise is all about and the importance of it. Again, remember, Mark is very intentional to put something here. He thought it was important enough for a Gentile audience to know that this comes from somewhere. This gospel of Christ does not originate 2,000 years ago. This is something that started way back, even going all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3.15. When God goes to Eve, or goes to the serpent actually, and, and tells the serpent that from the seed of Eve is going to come one who crushes the head of the serpent. So this gospel has been proclaimed for the, for, since literally the very first two people 
who ever walked the earth. They heard the gospel. God preached the gospel to them. And so that's what Mark's point here is. But let's turn to Exodus 23. We're going to look at the three places in the Old Testament where these verses are coming from. Exodus 23, verse 20 is the first one. And I actually preached this months ago here in this church. This is a passage. I don't know if, don't know if y'all will remember. Probably not. So Exodus 23, verse 20, though. This is about the conquest of the land. This is right before they enter the promised land. And God is, God is promising, look at verse 20. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. And remember we talked about how this was a, a reference to Christ the Messiah. The angel of the Lord. The angel of God. This is a reference to the Son of God. Look down at verse 22. But if you truly obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He's talking about how the angel's going to go before and he's going to bring them into this promised land. If you, if you look at... Um, Look at verse 21. Be on your guard before Him and obey His voice. That You know, the, the Bible doesn't speak about angels in that way. Nowhere does it say, hey, you have to obey the angels here in the sense of if you don't, look what it says. Do not be rebellious toward Him, for He will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in Him. No angel, no human being, no church, no priest, right? Nobody has the authority to forgive you of your sins. God has that authority. Nobody else. And so this is a clear reference to the fact that, that Christ is going to go before them. And of course it says, my name is in Him. And to name something, that is, that, is, that is proclaiming God, that God is the one who's going to go before them, and that's the Son of God. And so that's the first verse that Mark is referencing, right? And especially again, verse 20, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now think about this in the context of John the Baptist. And next week we're really going to talk about John the Baptist. This week we're preparing the way for the one who prepared the way, which is John the Baptist, okay? But this is to say that for thousands of years, there was an anticipation about something as far as the gospel goes, and, and especially that there was going to be someone who comes and does this great work. This is, of course, before the first exile. So remember, they're out in the wilderness, and that's going to be a theme that we look at in a minute, the wilderness. But they're in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land for the first time. And God comes in and He says, I'm going to prepare this place for you. My angel, meaning my son, is going to lead the way. And here John, or excuse me, Mark, thousands of years later, he's using this as a verse that points to Christ bringing in the gospel. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So turn to the second one. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3. And this is actually regarding the second exodus. So just to give you a quick history on the church and what happens. So they go into the promised land. And remember God tells them, hey, if you're faithful, if you do what you're supposed to, things are going to go well. Well, they don't. They rebel. They become idolaters. They get involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. So what does God do? He raises up certain countries, certain nations to go in and destroy his own people and take them into exile, take them into captivity. So this is Isaiah. And look at verse uh, chapter 40, verse 3. He's speaking about what's going to happen after this conquest, after this second conquest. And there's hope here. Verse 3, he says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And then he goes on and on. This is a great passage anyways. We won't read all of it. But if you look down... Let's say verse 5, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's telling them there's a promise here that cannot be undone. Even though everything else is undone, our flesh will be undone. People come and go, generations come and go, cities come and go, nations come and go, powers, they rise and then they fall. But there's one thing that never stops as far as its power goes, as far as its truth goes, as far as its validity goes, and that's God's Word. That's God's promises. So this is a promise from Isaiah that he's saying there's going to be a day when the Lord is going to, what? He's going to come and redeem His people and deliver them. Not in a physical way from their exile. Because think about it. So they go into exile, and then they go back to Jerusalem, and then there's a period, basically, of... I'll show you. Go to Malachi 3. This is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 3. This is the last, this is the last reference that Mark gives us. But Malachi 3 is the last book in our Old Testament... But there's going to be a 400-year period between the last prophet in the Old Testament and the first prophet that we see in the New Testament, which is John the Baptist. A 400-year period. But look what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And it goes on and on. And it's talking about how God is going to come and deliver His people once and for all. And He's also going to judge those who are not His people. Judge the nations. But here's what we have. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, and you ask yourself, why is He telling us this? What's the significance of this? Think about how big the Old Testament is, right? You got the whole Old Testament before you, and and he picks very... Remember, Mark was the first gospel. The other gospels came after Mark. So when you see this in Matthew and Luke, these verses are in there. They got that from Mark. Why did Mark put that in here? Well, it's teaching us certain things. There's, There's three things specifically I want to look at as far as what this teaches us. The three effects of the... We'll call this the tapestry of quotations that Mark uses. Number one, it links Jesus' life and ministry to the Old Testament. This is important. I know I already mentioned it in a a sense, but I want to go fuller into this, okay? Especially in our culture, our Christian culture, especially if you're coming out of maybe a more dispensational background. If you don't know what that means, that's fine. But here's the idea, okay? A lot of times in the Christian church, there's this idea that the church is, is like second place. It was an afterthought. It was, it was, it was plan B. Right? So in other words, the, the idea is, well, the gospel was primarily intended for this specific people group. They reject their own Messiah, so God kind of opens the door whenever Christ comes after they reject the Messiah. And He says, well, since they rejected Him, now I'll let the Gentiles come in. But what this shows us, again, remembering who Mark is and who he's writing to, he's writing this to Gentile Jews. It's not to say, of course, we're not definitely not saying the Jews are excluded here. In fact, we're saying Gentiles, by God's grace, are grafted into, technically, the Jewish church. Because remember, the Messiah is the fulfillment of Judaism. All of these promises in the Old Testament were pointing to the fact that the Messiah was coming to save His people. Well, who are His people? Well, we'll look at this in a minute. 
But what we're seeing here is that Mark is telling us that this, this, this messenger is Yahweh Himself, right? Yahweh Christ, speaking of Christ in Exodus 20, we read that. And before Christ returns, there will be someone who comes preparing the way. And a lot of times they thought it was Elijah. That's kind of what, what people in early, the early church thought and the early, um, I guess it would be the late Jewish church. In other words, remember whenever they thought Christ at one time was Elijah. In fact, last night I was reading got the Gospel of Mark and King Herod, after he, he has, King Herod, uh, King Herod has John the Baptist uh, beheaded, takes his head off. But then when he sees Jesus doing these miracles, he says either John the Baptist has been raised from the dead or this is Elijah. And so there was this idea going around that Elijah, before the Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come before the Messiah. And as we read Scripture, we'll find this out as we go through the Gospel of Mark, but this is a reference to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah, symbolically speaking, who comes before the Messiah. So this was common knowledge. But it is to say, this is not an afterthought. It's not like God was like, oh man, now that they've rejected the Messiah, what do we do? This is the way that God had always intended for it to happen. God, and, and turn to Galatians 3. Let's look at this. Galatians 3. So this is, let's, let's, let's look at what Paul says here. Galatians 3. And he says this. Okay, let's start. Let's look at verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham, this is going back to Genesis 12, first book of the Bible. Abraham is there. God goes to Abraham. God tells Abraham to look at all the stars in the sky. And he says, as are the stars, so will be the number of your offspring, the number of, of your people, the people that come from you, right? And you're thinking, okay, well that, but here we have, look what Paul says here in verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, that's interesting, right? Who are sons of Abraham? Those who have faith. Faith in what? Faith in the Messiah. Faith in Christ. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether whatever your background is, whatever your nationality is, whatever country you live in, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're an American, whether you're Mexican, wherever you're from, right? The way that you're saved has always been the same way. It's by faith in the Messiah. That's what it's saying right here in verse 6 again. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't because he was bringing animals to the, to the temple. It wasn't because he did everything right. Those were symbols of what Christ was going to come do. But ultimately it was about the faith that you had in the Messiah which made you either of Israel or not of Israel. And so that's why we as even Gentiles can say we belong to Israel. We don't replace Israel. We belong to Israel because by God's grace we believed in the Messiah. We've been grafted in. That's the way it has always been. That's the purpose that God always intended all the way back in the Old Testament. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Remember that promise? God is saying, look, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And here Paul is telling us, how does that happen? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ going to all the nations, all the world. This is the purpose of when you're reading, especially let's say Exodus 23, when you're reading Malachi 3, when you're reading Isaiah 40, these are the promises that God has given about the Messiah. He's going to come in, He's going to usher in the salvation that has been meant for all, for, to go and to bless all the world. Bless all the world. Number two, 
So in other words, the gospel is the completion of what God started in Genesis 3. The gospel is the completion of what God started way back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. That's the completion, that's the fulfillment of it, the culmination of it. That's why Paul in Romans 2 says, hey, let me read it. He says this. This is verse 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, your rituals, you know, your ancestry, where you come from, your background, your good works, your these things don't matter ultimately. Now they're significant in the sense that they always pointed to Christ and the Messiah and what he was going to do when he comes. But ultimately, they have no bearing on whether or not you're right with God. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what this is saying in Mark chapter 1 when you have this forerunner coming in to preach good news. Number two, what the three effects show us, the second effect is this, that it it helps us to understand who, who Christ is. Now, this is really significant in my mind because... We talked about last week, in the first one it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we talked about how that was a reference to deity. That was a reference by John to the fact that Christ is God. You see the same language, Christ uses the language about Himself, and when others use it about Himself, He accepts their worship. In Hebrews 1 it talks about how Christ is the Son of God, and He created all things, and through Him all things have been made, says it in Colossians 1 as well. But here you have insight into who Mark thought Jesus Christ was. Now remember who Mark was, right? Mark was Peter's right-hand man. Wherever Peter was, Mark was. And if, if, if Mark wasn't where Peter was, Mark was where Paul the Apostle was. Mark was where Luke was. Mark was always in the thick of it. So he was around whatever the the culture was, whatever they were talking. In other words, whatever Mark thinks about Christ, you can bet that the rest of the early church thought the same thing about Christ. Because they all have that same commonality. They're in it together. They're in the same areas. They're in the same houses. What this tells us about Christ, again, remember the reference to Exodus 20, 23, excuse me, that in Exodus 23, it's talking about the angel of the Lord who is Yahweh, Christ. Well, Mark, using this as a reference to Christ, is acknowledging that Christ is Yahweh, the Lord. Capital Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Right? This is who Christ is to Mark. So that's why this is significant, because it tells us who Christ is. Helps us to understand His person. Yahweh is a reference to Christ. If you ever run into a, a Jehovah's Witness, um, you know, the, the religion, right? This is a great, great areas to go to right here. Because you're able to demonstrate that this is who Mark was talking about. Going to the Old Testament, you look at the Old Testament, it's talking about Yahweh. You go to the New Testament over here, this is a direct reference to Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh. And there's other places in Scripture you can do that as well. Secondly, though, or excuse me, thirdly, this gives us a clue to Jesus' ministry. And what I mean by that is this. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it says either the way or path or paths three times. That's important. Kind of like what Logan mentioned about the repetition. That's important. So what it says here in verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. 
Verse 2, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And verse 3, make his paths straight. His paths, right? So a way, a path. In other words, there's a particular direction, a particular path that we are called to walk because Christ himself came to do this. If you think about, I mean, and we all know this, you know, I don't want to... In a sense, I, I know I'm speaking to the choir here. Maybe you've never heard this. But Christianity is different from every religion in the universe. Because it's the only religion that says your works have no bearing on your salvation. In other words, if we were to ask, okay, we go to a Muslim. What is the way to Allah? And he'll tell you. Well, you've got to pray five times a day. You've got to make a trip to, uh, to Mecca. You've got to... Faster in the month of Ramadan, you got to pray five times, all these things, right? You have the, This is the way. You go to a Roman Catholic, what is the way to God? Well, you got to confess your sins. You have to be part of a church, you have, the Catholic church, excuse me. You have to do all these things. That's the way. Well, when you're talking about what is, you, you ask a Christian, what is the way to God? It's Christ. They're like, well, what do you mean it's Christ? That Christ is a person. What, what's the way, right? What's, what do I have to do? That's what we always want to know, right? What do, I, what, what, what do I have to do? Well, you have to believe in the way. Well, what's the way? Christ is the way. He says that, right? He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. So the way to God is the person of Christ himself. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the the way of the Lord. What's the way of the Lord? So in other words, this is emphasizing the person of the crucified Messiah, what He does for our sins. That He suffers in our place. That it's not about rituals or temple offerings or righteousness. It's about following Christ. And so again, the three, the three effects of this, this tapestry of quotations. Number one, it links Christ's life and ministry to the Old Testament. There's continuity there. Number two, it helps us to understand who Christ is. He's Yahweh. And number three, it gives us a clue to Jesus' ministry and what we must do to be right with God. He's the way. You want to be right with God? Follow Him. Look to Him. Cling to Him. That's it. Right? That's it. Now... The first verse four, I want to look at verse four. And like I said, next week, we're going to really touch on John the Baptist and baptism specifically because uh, verse four just touches on it. Um, But verses five through eight really hit it. So verse four, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Now, your translations might have something different than appear because it technically it should be something a little more forceful as far as, okay, because what it's trying to do is, is it's trying to say almost like something behold, like in verse two, it says, behold, pay attention, wake up. This is, this is, this is important, right? So when John the Baptist appears, it's not like he just kind of, kind of, kind of just saunters out there and, 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 and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, okay, we, we've, you know, here's John the Baptist. It's saying, hey, this is something new. This is something that, that is altogether different. It's almost like this breaking in of something. This, this cosmic rupture of the everyday, of the mundane, of the ordinary. And it's in the person of John the Baptist. He appears in the wilderness and he's preaching. He's preaching. Now, isn't that something? That John the Baptist comes preaching or proclaiming. Now, turn with me in the same gospel to chapter 1. We're already in chapter 1. Look at verse 15. And this is about Jesus. It says in verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God 
And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Christ is preaching. John the Baptist is preaching. Look at this right here in um, chapter 6, verse 12. This is about the disciples. Christ sends them out. They went out and preached that men should repent. So there's two words here that come up in all those three places. Number one is preach. Number two is repent. Right? So they're preaching. And what are they preaching? A very specific message. Repentance. They're preaching repentance. And why is that important? Well, number one, it kind of gives us insight into how we should go about talking. Now, now, it's not to say the only way to preach the Word or to get someone saved is to preach it. Like from a pulpit, outside, something like that. You know, it's, it's, if you're, in a sense, if you're in conversation, if you're talking to a neighbor, if you're talking to a stranger, if you're talking to someone at work and you're talking to them, to them about the Gospel, okay, in a sense, that, that is always going to be effective. By God's grace, right? The power of the God, the power of God's in the gospel. But what this is talking about, if you imagine of the different ways that God could have done this. Number one, God did not have to have John the Baptist. If he wanted the word proclaimed, he could have technically, I guess, written it in the sky, put it on a leaf, you know, put it on people's pillows or whatever they slept on, like like maybe manna out of heaven with a message on it. He could have done that, right? But he doesn't do that. He comes preaching. John the Baptist comes preaching. Jesus comes preaching. You're like, okay, well, I understand that. He's the Son of God. But Jesus also tells his disciples to go out preaching. And there's something about preaching because especially, you know the word uh, crier, like a town crier. It's an old English word. And you might think of a town crier to go into the public forum and he would cry, you know, it's 12 o'clock and all as well. That's where this word comes from. The word cry out comes from this, there's etymology similarities here, okay? It's the same It's the same function. That John the Baptist is going to proclaim as a herald, as a messenger, that the king is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Just like a town choir, especially um, even before like medieval English history, if you go all the way back to the times of Artaxerxes and Xerxes and things like that, these huge armies, when these armies would go into the city, they would, all, they would always send forerunners to go into those cities to tell them, hey, the king is coming, get ready for him. Get the, get the food ready. Get the, make sure they have places to stay. Make sure everything's, everything's organized and well kept because the king is coming. So and so is coming. So John the Baptist is coming and he's saying, make sure you're ready because the King is coming. He's on His way. And like we talked about last week with the Gospel or Good News, right? It's one thing to go and say, hey, Artaxerxes is coming, so make sure he's got enough food and make sure he's got enough, you know, like a palace or whatever he's looking for. It's a whole other thing when you're talking about God Himself is coming. The God that we've been waiting for for thousands of years. The God who we haven't heard from as far as a word of God goes. For these guys, they haven't heard a, from a, a word from God in 400 years. John the Baptist, technically, is an Old Testament prophet. Right? Think about that. He's an Old Covenant prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's in the New Covenant. He's in the New Testament, of course. But he's the last of the Old Testament He's the last one. So you have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Malachi, you have all these prophets telling people about Christ who is coming. And then finally you have John the Baptist who's greater than anyone born of a woman, Jesus says. And long after John the Baptist is dead, people are still talking about him, even in Jerusalem. Remember when they go to Jesus and they say, was Jesus from from God or from man? 
And they're confused because they're, they're afraid because Jesus gives them this, this answer. And they're thinking, well, or excuse me, Jesus asked them that. Is, was he from God or from man? And they're thinking, oh man, how do we answer this? Because if we say that he's from man, they're going to be mad at us for killing him. We say that he's from God, they're going to say, why'd you kill him? So what do we say? So John the Baptist, his ministry had repercussions long after he died. He was a very influential prophet. But the point is, is he comes with a very specific and not so different message than all the others. But now the urgency is there. Isaiah was urgent, but he was talking about, hey, if we don't repent, we're going to be destroyed. Assyria, Babylon, they're going to come and destroy us. Jeremiah is saying the same thing. John the Baptist is talking about something altogether different. Look at verse 4 at the last part. So he appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll talk about, again, baptism next week. I will say this. In this day, talking about John the Baptist's day, there were three ways that a Gentile could be converted to the Jewish faith. There were three primary ways. Number one, he had to accept the faith. He had to have all these three things. Okay, You had to accept the Jewish faith. You had to accept the Jewish faith. Number two, you had to be circumcised. And number three, you had to be baptized to get rid of your Gentile uncleanness. And so somewhere between the Old and New Testament, this, this baptism ritual started, and now we call it a sacrament. But at this point, what's going on here is the reason this is so astounding is because, number one, there were Jews also being baptized. John the Baptist was also baptizing not just Gentiles like it used to be, but now he's baptizing Jews and Gentiles. Why? It's the same thing that Paul talks about, right? Because it's not just the, the Gentiles that need to be forgiven of their sins. It's not just Gentiles who are unclean. It's anybody who's not in Christ that are unclean. So when John the Baptist comes, he's preaching repentance. Now, repentance, there's two primary meanings. What the, the word here is metanoia, which is a change of mind. A change of mind. Number two, repentance. You probably heard this. You're walking one way and then you stop and you turn around and you start walking another way. That's repentance, right? It's a change of path. And usually in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a change of direction. In the New Testament, when you see the word repentance, it usually, uh, uh, usually means a change of mind. And what that means is this, okay? When you go out, first of all, what John is saying, he's saying, come to the wilderness. That's where John the Baptist is. The wilderness is not just an offhanded reference here also. The wilderness is, is of very serious significance all the way back to the very beginning of God's people. So the wilderness is the place where God would always bring His people for, to renew the covenant with them, to, to speak to them, to, to give them refreshment. Remember, He delivers them from Egypt. And where do they go? They go out into the wilderness, and that's where God meets with them. And there's many references to this as far as the wilderness being this place of repentance and God's grace and a place of hope a place of renewal, a place of new beginnings. That's the wilderness. And a lot of times, in, in fact, Jeremiah 2, Exodus 15, these are, these are mentioned about the wilderness. So it's not insignificant that John the Baptist is outside of the cities. He's outside of the towns. And the mindset in those days, a lot of times, I don't know if you're familiar, anyone here is familiar with the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -E -E a lot of times people think John the Baptist was an Essene. They were ascetics. They lived away from the city. They thought the cities and the towns, they tried to avoid people, almost like monks, hermits. Um, I don't, John the Baptist, it doesn't seem like he was part of that, but he, it, it might have been the same mindset. There's a significance about being in the wilderness. It's come away from the, 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 the stuff of the world. Come away from the distractions. Come away from the, all, the, all, the, all the things that stain us. 
in our day-to-day lives. Now, we're not called to leave the world. But it's to say, spiritually speaking, we're called to leave the world. Are we not? Come out of them, my people, God says. Come out of them. Come away from there. So John the Baptist, first of all, is calling them out into the wilderness. And when they get there, he's calling them to a baptism of repentance. What does that mean? A change of mind. When somebody becomes a Christian, when somebody's born again, remember Christ, he says, unless a person is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And when you're looking at what he means by that, he's saying that you cannot understand the kingdom of God. When he says you can't see the kingdom of God, that word see there is talking about understand. No, you can't know, you can't comprehend the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And when someone's truly born again and the Holy Spirit comes and it does a work of grace in them, you know what happens? Their mind changes about who God is. They go from being apathetic about God to all of a sudden they love God, they're on fire for God, they want to they please God, they want to worship God. But their mind also changes about sin. Their mind changes about, about the sin that they've committed, the sins they used to love, the sins they used to be enslaved to. What do they do now? They turn from that sin, right? They turn from the sin they once loved. And that's what repentance is. So what John the Baptist is preaching, again, is the same thing that Christ is preaching, the same thing that the disciples are preaching. It's repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is here. Now's the time to be right with the Lord. And we can say the same thing, right? Especially now, in light of what Christ has done on the cross. Christ has not even gone to the cross when John the Baptist is preaching repentance. But now we're having this this idea where it's saying it's urgent now. It's urgent. For every one of us, it's urgent. So we can say the same thing today that John the Baptist was, was preaching in those days, and that's, that's a baptism of repentance. We're undone without it. It's a renovation of heart. It's a change of mind. It's going to change the way you live, right? And so that's what John the Baptist is preaching here. So as we go through this, we start seeing what is exactly is happening, and all the country of the Judea, and all the country of Judea was going out to him. All these people are going out; they're flocking, they're flowing out to John the Baptist, and he has one message: right, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I have to, we have to say the same thing today. We have to, not just here, but repent. Right? If you haven't turned to Christ, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you have not turned to Christ, what are we waiting for, right? What, what, tomorrow's not promised to anybody. To anybody. I think most of you all know I preached a funeral. Willie was there, right, last week. I preached a funeral. My cousin died like that at 54. We don't know. That's why there's urgency in this. And that's why John the Baptist, he doesn't play around. Jesus goes out and he's not playing around. He's not playing games with people. He's not doing gimmicks. He's not doing tricks. He's not juggling. He's not, you know, jumping rope so everybody gets it. He's saying, listen, now is the time. You have to be right with God. You have to be right with God. He's your maker. He's your creator. He's your Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. All roads lead to Him. And so, that's my message also, right? Repent, a baptism of repentance. And we'll talk more about that next week as far as what that means. But for today, that's the message that the king has was coming, but now we can say the king has come. And he's died on the cross, and he was crushed in our place if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, call upon the name of Christ so that you can have assurance that he was crushed, he was bruised in your place so that we would never have to be crushed or bruised. And... If you are in Christ, 
you know, be a John the Baptist out there. Right? Go out there and tell others about the good news of Christ to the dying world that, that, that we're all a part of. Every one of us in our different spheres, our different locations at work and family, we all have different environments and areas of people that are not saved. And we need to tell them the good news that Christ came and be urgent about it. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's today. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. We love them enough, right, to tell them we want you to be right with God. John the Baptist loved them enough to say, repent, repent. John, Jesus Christ loved them enough to say, repent. The disciples loved, loved people enough to say, repent. We want you to be right with God. And the only way that can happen, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So let's go with the power of, we know we're not John the Baptist. We know we're not prophets. But we can be heralds. And we can be gospelizers to those around us. And if you're not right with the Lord yourself, right, turn to Christ today and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace of, of, of Your messengers, Lord, the grace that You gave them and the urgency that they had and the different expressions of that throughout Your Scriptures all the way back to the days of, of Abel who, who was slain because he was a follower of You, a, a man who looked to You in faith. And all those who have gone before us, Abraham and Moses and David, these very imperfect men trusting in a perfect God, trusting in a perfect salvation, done for us, given to us by the Messiah, by Christ Jesus our Lord. So thank you for the grace that you've given them and also us, Lord. Thank you for the, for the, for the privilege of, of being able to open and, and read about not just John the Baptist, but the very words that he preached and said, and the same with Christ and his disciples, Lord. So help us, Father. I pray that you'd be with those who are not yours today, that you would have mercy on them, that you would open their eyes. I pray for those who are your people today, that you would... That you would comfort us and encourage us and equip us, equip us, Father, to tell others to repent, to turn from their sins, give us grace, open doors, give us wisdom to do so. That we would reach Clovis and Bertalis and, and Milshu and Melrose and Sudan and all of these different places. Lord, give us grace, open doors, Father. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out in an abundant way, a mighty way upon every one of us. And, and on our endeavors that you would give us fruit, and not for us, Lord, but for your glory. We thank you, Father. We pray that you would help us, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, and we're going to sing the doxology now. And we don't have Zachary. He's at a meeting. He had a meeting this afternoon. So we're going to sing a cappella, unless Eric can do it off the cuff. Okay. All right, so we'll sing it if um, the doxology is going to say it's in the hymnal. It is in the hymnal in the back, but I think we all know it. So let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts.